This uh, brings God's word, but grateful for our team and grateful for Toby's gift and how he served us so well last week going through Ecclesiastes. We're continuing in our series. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning. And I'd encourage you, by the way, to have a Bible in your hand, whether it's electronic or a paper one. Um, I still think there's something about paper uh, that will never be duplicated. And I use electronic devices. I have a Kindle and all that, but there's just nothing like a book. And I think it's, uh, the, I don't know, the three-dimensional tactile a- aspect of being in the Word and flipping pages and all that. But anyhow, uh, I encourage you to have a Bible in your hand. If you're new uh, you don't have a Bible yet, let us know. We would love to give you a, a paper Bible. Um, and there's Bibles here as well. Yeah, we have pew Bibles. And my wife is pointing out, we have the Ecclesiastes journals as well. So that has the text and then space for notes. And that's complimentary for you, if anyone would like. Um, actually, if you'd like one, can you raise your hand and Peg or someone will get you one? Um, but again, just to have the word, uh, we project it for your convenience, but... Uh, I think it can become a habit of just relying on what you see on the screen, and it's not the same as being able to follow the whole text, because we preach through the Bible most of the time, um, and so you need to be able to see all that's going on as we go through it. Just want to encourage you that way. So as you turn to Ecclesiastes 4, let me uh, tell you, uh, read a quote. Jason Dusing, author of Mere Hope, Life in an Age of Cynicism, writes the following, with instant global interconnectedness alerting us to all forms of tragedy and conflict, our society appears to have defaulted either to resigned despair or distracted indifference. When regularly our leaders disappoint us by their actions and their human flaws are flouted and magnified due to our relentless and merciless scrutiny, it's easy to see why many have come to a collective understanding that no one can stand with a message of hope. Once a small genre of fiction literature, dystopian-themed novels, so novels that have basically they're dark, dystopian-themed novels, games, and movies seem now to be the predominant world in which entertainment takes place, and increasingly the real world as well. Hope, rather than dystopia, is the fiction of our day. What happens? He goes on to say, uh, quoting Mohammed Farouz, the composer of the who says, the age of anxiety has given way to the age of cynicism. Among my generation, so he's younger, cynicism is no longer a bad word. It's being celebrated, and it is often mistaken for intelligence. The age of cynicism, Farouz continues, is where it is better to be wry and distrustful than to be open and trusting. This is the reality we live in. And I'm so grateful for the book of Ecclesiastes, because the book of Ecclesiastes parachutes into the midst of the fray of cynicism and brings life-changing perspective. First, it it faces the the reality, the raw and nagging reasons for a life of cynicism honestly and fully. Sometimes it even seems as we go through this book that the preacher himself is promoting cynicism. But there's a method to his madness, so to speak, as he goes through. He's aiming at our redemption, that we might see this broken world as it is, in all of its brokenness, but from that place, look to God. Both in the midst of life under the sun, as the preacher says, but also in the life that is above the sun, the ultimate reality where God reigns. 
So let's spend some time once again with the preacher of Ecclesiastes, that we might learn wisdom for this broken world. We need this wisdom for ourselves, don't we? But we also need it because we're representing the hope that there is in Christ to a world who is characterized by much cynicism. We can be honest with them, but we can take them beyond cynicism to something greater. So let's pray. and We'll look at chapter 4 as he continues. The preacher here will consider some things that are better than others. Some things that are better than others in this uncertain world. There actually are some things that are better than others. Let's pray, then we'll read God's Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how real Your Word is. You know us. You know our situation. You don't call us to pretend. You don't call us to fake joy or fake godliness. You address things fully and honestly in Your Word. And yet, You come to rescue us with a real rescue that really makes a difference in our lives and really positions us to be like You, Jesus, as we seek to minister Your love and truth to this world. So I pray as we go through Ephesians, uh, Ecclesiastes 4, Lord, would You help us to hear from You all that You intend in this chapter. Help me to serve well in this, Lord. Help me, Lord. I'm weak and needy, but You're able. You love Your people, and You love this mission You've called us to. So help me as we behold Your Word, as we listen to You. Would You change our lives? Would You refresh us and renew us? And would You send us from this place equipped in the truth and power that we have in Christ? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Verse 1, the preacher says, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, but there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor 
and wise youth and an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of all whom he led. Yet, those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The preacher is answering the question, really, through this, are there better things in this uncertain world? Are there better things than other things in this uncertain world? Lest we think that the reality of uncertainty or vanity levels everything. In other words, nothing matters. It's all the same. The preacher wants to bring some adjustment. Wait a second. Yes, we live in uncertainty, but there are things that are better than others. So let's ponder four different situations where there is something better than something else. So first, he's saying it seems better never to have seen oppression. Seems better never to have seen oppression. He addresses the problem of oppression done under the sun. The pervasive abuse perpetrated in too much of life under the sun. And these few verses, you can feel the poignancy of his statements. If we're going to take an honest, raw look at the world, we must fully consider the reality of oppression. Too often, because it's hard, because it's disturbing, we ignore or hide from this reality. But God's Word faces it front on. God's Word is not about, quote, positive thinking or platitudes and some sort of different perspective that ignores oppression. It offers real diagnoses and real answers. Oppression is a terrible reality that is all around us. And the preacher sees it. He uses this verb to see throughout this chapter. The preacher sees all the oppression that is done under the sun. Let me help you a little bit. 20% of American women have experienced rape or attempted rape. 20%. One, one in three girls and one in seven boys are sexually assaulted as children. One in four women will experience physical abuse at the hands of their spouse or partner. 80% of the population has dealt with emotional abuse at some point from other people. And emotional abuse is an important one to consider. It can include verbal assault, dominance, control, isolation, ridicule, or the use of intimate knowledge for degradation. It's using things to manipulate and oppress people, using your power to get your way. As many as 20% of marriages are characterized by chronic emotional abuse, with women two times more likely to be the victims. There is oppression on massive scales as well, right? Racism, sexism, societal greed. We have long histories of this sort of abuse. It's not without reason that the black church in America has a strong identification with the oppression of the Israelites in Egypt. 
They have lived their own version over centuries. And every potential incident of racism in the news reopens that centuries-long wound. Our brothers and sisters in the black church can teach us something about living faithfully under oppression. We must listen. We must open our eyes with the preacher to see it rightly. Oppression is all around us. Anytime someone uses their power, whatever that might be, to oppress rather than help someone, it is oppression. You don't have to be a, uh, an acolyte of critical race theory to recognize the reality of oppression that too much characterizes life under the sun. Now you might say, why spend so much time on three verses? Because this reality lasts far longer than it, the time it takes to read these three verses. Those who live days and weeks and months and years under oppression experience a living hell often. I belabor this point because it's far more common than the length of this explicit section may demonstrate. If the statistics and my pastoral experience are right, most of us have been involved at some point or another, or many of us, either as victims or perpetrators. And some of us are stuck there right now. I belabor this point because it's warranted and God offers us real answers. We must first identify the problem before we bring solutions. And that's what goes on here in Ecclesiastes. Much of Ecclesiastes is identification of problems. And then it hints at and points us to the answers that we find in Ecclesiastes, but in the rest of Scripture as well. So in regards to oppression, what are the answers? First, we need to know that God knows. God knows what's going on. God sees. The preacher wants us to see it too. He wants us to behold the tears of the oppressed, to look at them in their suffering, to not look away, but to see it, not to cover it up, not to pretend, but to behold their tears because God does. God sees. Psalm 56.8, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Jesus says in Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Speaking of Jesus. We need to see as God sees, we need to look at their situation. They had no one to comfort them, the preacher says. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. Knowing that they are powerless and alone, we should be part of the comfort. And I'm going to talk about that. To know that their power is alone, to see to recognize the oppression here that the one in power is abusing his or her power to harm the other. All power, brothers and sisters, all power is given by God to honor Him and bless others. That's what your power is given to you for. It's not for self-promotion. It's for service. And what a person does with their power, will tell you what's inside their heart. The oppressor is rotten in the heart. 
He would use his power to control and suck the life out of another instead of giving life and empowering others. The preacher wants us to behold this terrible predicament of the oppressed. And then he gives his shocking statement. The rest of the chapter, the better than statements make sense, right? Two are better than one. Yeah, of course. This better statement is confusing and it's used to illustrate the depth of sorrow of the oppressed to wake us up. And he says this, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. If you honestly look at the horror of oppression, you'll understand what the preacher is feeling and saying. The evil and suffering are so dark sometimes that it does seem better to never have lived. So first, let the weight of these verses hit you. And let them wake you up to the reality and the fact that God knows what's going on. God calls us to look to Him and calls us to help as well. I think first though, we must recognize that the ultimate example of oppression is the oppression experienced by God Himself voluntarily. If anyone deserved far better than abuse, it's the holy, loving Son of God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. Yet He was subjected to beatings, torture, and death at the hands of the powerful. His oppression is truly horrible to behold. Just look at Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, No one likes to look at that sort of oppression. He was despised and we esteemed him not. By oppression, verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. He was oppressed greatly. And yet, the sovereign God and His character and genius and power turned oppression on its head through the life of Christ. And His oppression that He experienced at the hand of the powerful was ultimately voluntary and part of the plan to bring rescue and to redeem the oppressed and oppressors. What powerful hope There is in the reality of Christ's oppression for us. To identify with us, that's part of what He did on the cross. He identified with mankind. He identified with you and the oppression you are struggling with wherever you might be. He's identifying with you in His death, His sufferings, His death on the cross. Don't miss that part. We keep the atonement, rightly so, at the center of Christ's work on the cross. But the atonement is intricately connected to His identification with us. He knows what it is to suffer and be oppressed. And yet, in that, He brings atonement. He pays for our sins, all of our sins, whether oppressed or oppressor. He brings healing and power to overcome sin and evil and all oppression and all injustice. He will, both through His 
death and resurrection and through His final judgment deal with all oppression. So let us look to Jesus first and foremost in all this. But secondly, with that, of course, let us hate and abhor oppression. Let us see it for what it is. Let us have great compassion on the oppressed, not denying or despising their oppression, but identifying with it and relieving it as we can. Let us repent of any and all abuses of power. And I would say, perhaps, most abuse of power is not entirely conscious. So it isn't just, oh, I shouldn't do that terrible thing. There might be things you're not even aware of where you might be abusing power. So let us recognize that any use of power to control and merely advance our own agenda is a great evil. Let us repent of failing to use our power and advantages, whatever they might be, to bless others and honor God, to relieve oppression, to lift the downtrodden, to empower others to flourish as those made in the image of God. So use your relational skills, young people. If you have good relational skills, if you're the the person that everyone likes to be with, turn that power around and include those that are excluded. Refuse to let your click have a closed door, but open it up and love others. Use your talents and admirable qualities to serve and make others successful. Use your material wealth to empower others. Use your spiritual maturity to strengthen and sustain and serve others. Use your social status to lift others up. This is what we're called to do. This is why we're given these gifts. So that's how we respond here. We recognize the problem. We recognize Jesus as the ultimate one who was oppressed but overcame. And then we recognize the solutions God calls us to. Let us be the one who is there to comfort the one who's oppressed. That's just one of four points. Others go a little quicker. Um, The preacher goes on to talk about work. Switching gears. It's a common theme in Ecclesiastes. Uh, This book is likely a reflection on Genesis 1-3, to three in particular. And we know in Genesis 3 a big part of the curse from sin is the curse on work. And so work gets cursed because of the fallen world and we experience this uncertainty and this vanity. Murphy's Law is at work all the times. Work fails to live up. And so he addresses this once again. And he addresses this idea of of those who work and toil and to seek advance their careers from envy of their neighbor. That's verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, think about it for a little bit. Because you might be like, well, wait a second. I don't know. But think about it. Work is first about, well, it's first about honoring God, but meeting needs, right? What are our needs, truly? What does Scripture say our material needs are? Food, clothing, and shelter, right? How much food do we need? Most of the world, through most of history, needed daily bread. That's why the prayer says, give us this day daily bread, because literally that's how they lived. They needed food each day, and that was enough, though to get their food, to depend each day for food. How much clothing do we need? Well, most of history, most people had one or two sets of clothes. You can get by with that. I know some of you are cringing at that idea. Some of you maybe are getting by with two sets of clothes, and people are cringing at that idea too. 
shelter. How much shelter do you need? Just enough to shelter you. And again, most of history, most people lived in like one-room huts, sheds, and so forth. And they brought up families in those places. And they did okay. They survived. Can you imagine if our whole economy was built around that sort of simple level of supply, how things would shift? You'd only need to make about 50 cents an hour and whatever. It would just change everything. But for various reasons, not all wrong, by the way, but including envy of others, we want more. We want a whole wardrobe full of the latest. And this is what the preacher is saying. It's envy of others. It's it's, it's comparison with others. It doesn't mean it's necessarily sinful, like I want to be better than my neighbor and you know, I want to have dominance, but I see my neighbor with multiple sets of clothes and like, oh, I never thought. Maybe I should have more than my one set of clothes. So there's more. I see my neighbor who, who doesn't just get daily bread, but actually eats a different meal every, day, every meal of the day and every day of the week instead of the porridge that I eat day after day. So I want something more. And I see my neighbor who has more than a one-room house. Actually, Peg and I um, got to spend a little bit of time in Naples, Florida. Our moms go down there. Naples is a beautiful place. We can never afford to live there. It has the second highest density of millionaires of any U.S. city. It has uh, one of the highest density of billionaires as well. The homes there, the median household income is about a million dollars. That's the median, right? That's like the middle, a million dollars. Many of the beachfront homes are... 20,000 to 70,000 square feet. Dan, I think I have a picture here to show. They're truly beautiful homes. And actually, as we do, I do a lot of walking, prayer walking when I'm down there, and walking among the mansions. It makes me think of heaven, because heaven's going to be full of mansions. But um, these, these large homes, I don't think, now I don't know for sure, but I don't think they need 70,000 square feet of space. I think it's often probably like a couple who are living in 70,000 square feet of space. So why not build a simple 2,000 square foot home on the beach? I mean, do you really need 70,000 square feet? But think about how out of place that would look, right? Here's a 70,000, here's a 50,000, here's a 30,000, here's a little 2,000 square foot home. It doesn't fit in. That's what the preacher's getting at. We look around and we compare and we adjust our standard of living and our expectations. And there's that reality that he's getting at that we're driven merely because we see other people and what they have. And again, it's not necessarily wrong. I don't think the implication is, not, is that it's necessarily wrong. It can be for sure. But he's saying this is a vanity that he observes, that people are just, like they're working so hard because they were trying to keep up with the Joneses because they think they have to. And So he's calling us to recognize that reality and, and adjust ourselves. In this section as well, though, he's also talking about the fool. The fool, and we see the, the fool often in wisdom literature, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Graphic picture. The, the idea is that the fool is so lazy, he wants to fold his hands and take a nap, that he basically is, eat, is consuming his own resources. He's cannibalizing himself. He's foolish. And so, so the, the preacher is trying to get us to think about work. There's the toil, I, I've got to have this, got to have that. But over here is the fool who doesn't want to do anything and just consumes everything and runs out of things. And then says this, better, verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Better, instead of folding your hands and consuming yourself, and better than two hands full of toil is a handful of quietness. Basically, 
Honest, simple, hard work. That's what he's getting at. Honest, simple, hard work has its value. Honest work has a blessing. There's to be a blessing. And so Ecclesiastes is going to talk about that quite a bit. The place of work, it's still a good thing. It's just that we have to keep it in perspective. Work still works. Even though the world has fallen, even though Murphy's Law is happening, there's still a blessing in just, just a good day of labor. A good, hard day of labor. There's peace here. So, I think this calls us to look at our work ethic, right? Because you might be one of the poles. You, probably most of Americans, are overworkers. Ever striving to have more. Ever striving to create heaven on earth. And this calls us to give it up, to be at peace, to put our hope in God, to enjoy work, but to not bank everything on work. Are you on the other side? Are you lazy? You're going to only hurt yourself and those around you, so get to work. Use your gifts. Invest your talents. Serve others. Learn to enjoy a good, hard day's labor. It's a gift of God, actually. It's intended that way. Next, the preacher teaches us about companionship and community. He says in verse 7, I saw vanity under the sun. And he looks, sees this person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. This person who has no one else around them, and yet works so hard all the time, and never stops to think, why am I doing all this? John D. Rockefeller, the entrepreneur of the 19th century, had a net worth of 1% of the national economy. That's the GNP. That would make him nowadays worth $534 billion. That's what, like three times what Jeff Bezos has. Um, it's way more. So he was very wealthy. He was asked, how much money, more money does he need? And his answer was, well, how much money does he need? His answer was, just a little more. There's this danger of acquiring wealth that can become a, a, a really vain pursuit. And that's what the preacher's getting at. This guy's working, but for what? He never stops to ask himself, what is it about? He's laboring alone. And he says, that is empty. It's vain. Meaningless. And then the preacher goes on to say two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Instead of working so hard just to work and to acquire money, recognize that we're called to relationship. We're called to join with others. We're called to partnership. We're called to community. Two are better than one. This, this relates to partnership, not just marriage, by the way. Because the, the way the, the words are used here, it's not, it's not implying marriage. So marriage is certainly a very important partnership. This is any sort of partnership with others. Family, business as well. But it also says the cord of three strands is not easily broken. So there's one-on-one -on -one relationships, but there's also three. Um, two is a couple, three is community. 
The relational dynamics, by the way, change entirely when you go from two to three. And actually, by the way, some people will see the core to three standards is not quickly broken, and they say, well, that, that third one is God. Um, that's probably one application of it, but actually that's not the best understanding of the context and the way the words are used. It means a third person. Um, for example, it says three quarter three strands are not quickly broken. The strand that's God is never breakable. You can't break that strand, right? So it's, it's not talking about God as the third strand, uh, though that's an application. It's talking about three people. It's talking about community. And when you have, go from two to three, all the relational dynamics change. You go from it's I'm relating to that person, they're relating to me, to I'm relating to that person, and I'm relating to that person, but that person's relating to that person, so I'm relating to that person relating to that person. That person's relating to that person, so I'm relating to that person relating to that person. I'm relating to those two people as they relate to me, and it goes on. There's, there's multiple levels. So it changes everything. All of a sudden, it's community, even though it's only three. And so the, the preacher is getting at this reality that it's vain to live alone even if you accomplish all your financial goals. It's, it's a waste of time. Two are better than one. To join with others and to live in community is what we're made for. Our labors are to be geared that way in partnership with others and to be blessed being with others and being in community. In September uh, 2004, McLean's Magazine told the story of Jim Selkers. One November day in 2002, Jim Selkers, a 53-year-old retired municipal worker in Winnipeg, climbed into bed, pulled the covers up, and died. Nearly two years later, on August 25, 2004, Police were called by his concerned relatives and they entered his apartment and found his body in a mummified state. Everything else in his tidy one-bedroom apartment was intact, though the food was spoiled and the wall calendar was two years out of date. Mr. Sulker's death went undiscovered for several reasons. He was reclusive. He was estranged from family members. He also had a medical condition that kept his body from decomposing and being discovered, and he had automatic banking. So his disability checks kept on coming and his bills kept on getting paid. And no one knew. Two years. It's a terrible, sad story. And it's a reminder that we are made for something much better. We're made for relationship. We're made for community. That's who we are. And that's how we use our lives and our gifts. We're made to to sympathize and empathize with others. We're made to share the joys and sorrows of life. We're made to use our gifts to help others. We're made to receive encouragement and strength and care from others. We're meant to, to be strengthened in the use of our gifts as we seek to honor God. We're meant to get help as we seek to represent Christ to a lonely, desperate world that needs to see people living in genuine relationship. So, I think this is perhaps more applicable than ever for us in COVID, have you settled for a Jim Selker's sort of life? Pulling up the sheets and dead to meaningful relationships. Have you settled just for a couple? Now, I recognize there are limits. But it's easy, and, and, and my concern, our concern pastorally, is coming out of COVID, are we going to just want to live like Jim Selker's? Or are we going to say, no, we're meant for Let's get involved. Let's reconnect. Two are better than one, and three is even better. Fourth point, and very quickly. The preacher tells us 
Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Verse 13. He talks about this, and this is an important point. Better is fresh blood if it's competent than old, crusty curmudgeons who are not doing the job anymore. It's better to have someone new poor and wise youth, even though he doesn't have the credentials, he comes from poverty, he's a nobody, he's a gifted person, and he steps up. Better to have that person than a foolish king who no longer knows how to take advice. Now, I think you can see the truth of that statement. Let me make some application, and let me put some caveats on it. I don't think I'm that old. I hope I'm not foolish, and I hope I am eager to take advice. I think I am. But as I read this verse, the, young, the idea of a young person, humble man or woman, eager to learn, willing to serve, the idea of young people stepping up and taking leadership is really exciting. Now, I hope it's not because we're old and curmudgeonly. <laughs> but I think there's just something vital about youthfulness. And about young people stepping up into leadership. And, and my desire, I actually pray this pro- at least once a week, if not every day, for the Lord to raise up young people, young leaders in our church. And I want to make sure we do all we can that there's nothing in our church that comes across to young people as crusty old curmudgeons. And let me just say to those, I guess, over 40, maybe over 50, you're not the best person to evaluate that. The best person to evaluate that are the young people. And there are things that we're going to do just because it's how we've always done it. We need to ask them, how's this coming across? Is this a church where you could come with your friends, your 20-somethings, your 30-somethings, and have them not say the first time, that's a boomer church, or that's this, but to say, wow, that's a multi-aged church. I see all the dynamics there. That's our, my desire, that's our desire. And let me say, if you are a millennial or a Zoomer, you need to get up off your seat and get engaged in this church. It's not just enough for me to tell you we want to be this. You need to make it that. And I know many of you are involved, and that's good. And it will be my joy to see more of you step up. It will be my joy when my time comes to pass the baton to the next lead pastor. It will be my joy to see between now and then many young people raised up in different roles, and leadership, and church planting, and missionaries to send as well. So hear this, hear the preacher, hear the call here. To use your gifts to step up, to serve, and to do it for the Lord. Um, It's interesting in this passage, there's this reality, this contrast between the old guy and the young person. Uh, But then at the end, he brings some wisdom that's really important. And young people, you need to hear this. The reality is, is you can become intoxicated with your leadership and its effects. You can be so into all that's going on in your generation and and just live for that. And what the preacher is saying is that with this young person, there was no no counting, right, all the people that followed this young person. Um, There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Your motivation to lead can't be just because it makes you popular or even successful. There's there's an uncertainty in this world the next generation or two generations later, they're not going to know what you did. 
And so you have to find, this is again what Ecclesiastes does, it points out the, the, the uncertainty, the vanity, so that you might look elsewhere. So your motivation to lead and to contribute can't just be, well, my friends are doing it and they want me to do it and I want to do it with them. It has to be there's something long-lasting here. And I love what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. There's an eternal reward, whether the next generation knows you or not. As I close and as I think about this section, I, as I wrote this, I couldn't help but think of uh, Jeff and Mickey Havstow. They're not here with us, right? But they're online probably with us. Jeff and Mickey, now Jeff is a pastor. You see Jeff serve as a pastor, but many of us don't see the things that Jeff and Mickey do for our church and how they have served us week after week with this motivation, serving the Lord Christ, not serving because everyone knows about what they're doing. And we're finding those of us who are getting involved in the transition as they transition to a new ministry up in the, uh, the White Mountain area, we're finding that they did a ton. We actually probably need like 10 people to replace them. And it just shows that they have worked so hard and they have served the Lord and they've done that knowing that God sees them. Knowing that God is the one who's aware of their service. And that's uh, such a blessing and it's such an example for all of us to serve the Lord. To be that person who steps up to serve and perhaps the young person who steps up to step into a role where they can serve, where someone older has been serving. So the preacher gives us wisdom in this passage. He gives us multiple better than statements throughout. He gives us this one, better is the young person than the old person, the old curmudgeon. He says earlier, um, I lost my notes here, uh, better is... Um, I have page numbers on here, and somehow they're all messed up. There we go. Trying to find my final page. Well, I can do it off the text. Um, so, better two are better than one is the other better than statement. We're called to community, not to strive alone. Um, and then um, the reality of, of better is the handful of quietness and two hands full of toil. Better to is good, honest work. And then the better then statement in this, uh, around oppression. To recognize that under oppression, you're going to think better that I'd never been alive. And that should call us in to identify and to be there to help. These four better than statements give us wisdom. There are things in this uncertain world that are better than others. Let me pray. And let's take a moment to consider Maybe one thing the Lord's calling you to. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth here. We thank you for how we are more aware right now, I expect, of things that you teach in your word. And we pray, Lord, you would lead us into application. We thank you, Lord, for your help. And I pray you be glorified in it. We ask in Christ's name.